The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, where we were reading just a few minutes ago. Those of you regular in our services, and most of you are, we've spent the summer in a lengthy study of the Holy Spirit. We're about one-third of the way through that series that I've titled The Spirit of Christ. And that was a title that was chosen specially, particularly, because it emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ and to glorify Him in the world today. But this morning, I'd like for us to take a a break from our study of the Holy Spirit and take us here into the Gospel of Matthew to talk specifically about Jesus and about his common everyday activities. And this is the reason I told you to note how that scripture in chapter 9 moves from section to section showing what Jesus did. So we're going to talk about today his common everyday activities through the public ministry of his life. Jesus is a a model for us, and so it makes this scripture one that requires our utmost attention. Most of Jesus' ministry was done in Galilee. Uh, This is the area where he grew up. Indeed, we read here in Matthew's gospel um, that it says in that first verse, and he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city, that is, to the place where he grew up. And he also spent some of his ministry in Judah, Judea rather. That's, that's where, of course, that they crucified him. More and more as he was there, there was growing hostility towards him. I want us to look at these few verses at the end of chapter 9, which encapsulates his everyday activities. As much as he could do, and he could do much, he was limited in his human body to 24-hour days. This is the reason that he needed rest, just as you and I do. He made an appeal to his disciples in the 38th verse that more help was needed to do the work to advance the kingdom of God. And indeed, if there is a command to preach the gospel to every creature, if there is a command and there is to go into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it will require much help. But we see that Jesus' assessment of the workforce really hasn't changed in all these years. The laborers are few, and there are many, many people out there that need the gospel. Now, if you'll observe the text beginning in Matthew 9, verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Thankful that we have the opportunity to investigate this text today. So I look over our congregation and I see uh, the depletion of our church membership since there are so many that have left us to go to other parts of the country. We find ourselves with a massive rebuilding project. There's always potential out there for harvesting new souls for Christ 
And as we look at our church body, we see the laborers are few. And we must admit that most of the crop is left in the field. And there isn't much of an effort to harvest them and bring them into the garner. I've commented many times that the scriptures detail Jesus' life for us as an example of what we are to do, the way that we are to live. We are to do his activities. Peter says this in first epistle, the first epistle, chapter 2, that Christ left us an example to follow. Now, if you were to look into that scripture, you would find that the immediate context that Peter writes is about the suffering of Christ's life. And I would ask you, for what did Christ suffer but the normal everyday activities that he did? They hated him because of what he did. He was harassed uh, and put to death because of the spiritual work that he did daily. He was attacked for his teaching in the synagogues. He, in his hometown of Nazareth, they attempted to throw him off a cliff because he taught that his life, that him coming to this earth was the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. He was pestered, imagine this, pestered for healing people. And he often did that, chose to do it on the Sabbath day. His compassion was set aside by legalists who preferred form over function. They never rejoiced that those with no hope were given hope through this one who had come to save them from their sins. Well, as we look in this ninth chapter, five miracles are recorded. In the first, the legalists complained that he was a blasphemer, and that's because he, he gave forgiveness of sins. In the last, they complained that he worked his miracles through the power of Satan. And then in between those first and last miracles, they complained that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. It was noted that he didn't observe ritualistic fasting. In the midst of their talking and all that they were complaining about, Jesus spent time with sinners because they were the ones that needed to be saved. The pretended righteous evidently did not need his help. And so he didn't come for them. He came to save those who realized that they were lost and needed him as Savior. And so it was the daily activities of being just who he was, just being Jesus, just being the Son of God, who is called to do what he did. And this is what eventually led him to be taken to the cross and crucified. And I might add that we should know this, that this was the major part of his purpose of coming into the world. We can't miss this, that he gave his life to suffer for the very ones who complained the most about him. The sinners that complained, he came to give eternal life to those that he died to save. And so as I think about what Peter wrote in his letter, uh, he wrote to say that we can expect the very same things. If we do what Jesus did in his life, we can expect the same kind of treatment from those that are hostile to the Christ that we serve. I think that you do know this to be true. There is growing hostility against Christianity. There's hatred in the world. You know, I, I don't want to just say the world. I want to say right here in the United States that there is hatred against the cause of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not the same as it was when I grew up. Not the freedoms that we have to express what we believe and would want to teach to others. And so we see that the United States is traveling the same path as churches in Europe, the same as those in England. England that was once uh, um, 
a bastion of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sent missionaries to other parts of the world. Now they have decreased in church attendance. Once gospel-oriented, once mission-minded, they now have churches boarded up all across their country and just a very, very small percentage of their population goes to church. Just this week we had a visiting pastor, this past week I should say, we had a, a visiting pastor who told me that his church had dwindled dwindled since COVID. People had not returned to the services. Of course, we experienced some of that here. There just doesn't seem to be any urgency about the gospel of Christ. So what did Jesus do about this? All these people around that are dying and on their way to hell, what did he do? Well, the scriptures are the only place they would go to find this information about what Jesus did. And we don't really need to subjectively imagine what Jesus did because it's all written here in the Word of God. And we hear it not just from those who wrote about it, but from Jesus himself listening to his own words as he spoke. It was his activity to bring people to himself and to save them from their sins. So they tell us what he came to do and they tell us what he accomplished. And as I said, not just from others, but we hear it from his own voice. Now in our passage today... We want to take a look at the modus operandi of Jesus. I'm sure most of you have heard that term. If you listen to or watch uh, police dramas on TV, or if you hear uh, courtroom television shows, watch those, you might hear the characters talking about the modus operandi of a criminal. And that's usually shortened to just you know two little initials, his M.O. And it means the, the usual way that the criminal goes about committing his crimes. He may have some tells, he may have some ticks, he may have some certain ways that he does the crime that he commits. And when they examine this, they see, well, these are the things that we can expect because this is the way that the criminal normally commits his crimes. Well, we can take that same term and use it without applying it to the acts of a criminal. This message is not about what criminals do. This is a message about Jesus Christ and what transpired in every day of his life. What did he do? Well, you can observe and learn by reading the gospel accounts what he did, what were his habits, and I can tell you without a lot of explanation that his habits were the habits of the king of a great kingdom. His habits are what we would expect from someone that was perfectly righteous, who was perfectly just, perfectly honest, perfectly matching his father's will. Now, Peter, who was with Christ during the days of his earthly ministry, wrote about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. I've mentioned it. And he talks about how we should live in reference to the way that Christ lived. But even more than that, when we consider what Jesus did day by day, we must consider that his habits were of one who perfectly loved, one who was perfectly compassionate. This this week when my wife was at the doctor's office, one of the nurses asked me, uh, what what have you learned through your illness? She was talking about the the surgery that I had in my back. She said, what has that taught you? We'd already talked about how it's pastor of the church and so on. She said, well, what has this illness taught you? And I said, the thing that it's taught me the most is to be compassionate towards people that are sick and hurting. That's what I learned most, and I needed more of that. To see what people go through. 
Well, this was Jesus. He was compassionate. And what you never, ever want to do is to confront the righteousness of God and the justice of God without also learning of His perfect love and His compassion. God is righteous and His justice leaves us without hope if He is not also merciful and gracious. G. Campbell Morgan, the great English pastor of the Westminster Chapel in the beginning of the last century, wrote this, and I thought it was very telling and interesting. He said, There is no reason in man that God should save. The need is born of God's own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the ravening wolf, having wandered from the fold? It has been said that the great work of redemption was the outcome of a passion for the righteousness and holiness of God. That Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. I do not so read the story. God could have met every demand of his righteousness and every demand of his holiness by handing men over to the doom they had brought upon themselves. But deepest in the being of God holding in its great energizing might both holiness and righteousness is his love and compassion. It is out of the love which inspired the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided. We have no claim on God. He is merciful because that is his nature. He is compassionate because that is the God that we serve. It's what he is. Well, we notice in our passage today that the love and compassion of Jesus was evident as he went about his work of ministering to the people. Now, we've read from Matthew chapter 9, and this continues the the story of Jesus' life following the beginning of his ministry. And we would notice in this ninth chapter that his activities have not changed from the very beginning of his ministry. John chapter 3, he was, or rather, Matthew chapter 3, he was baptized by John the Baptist. This is his inauguration into the ministry. Then immediately he goes into temptation in the wilderness. And he carries on and starts his ministry. And so we read in Matthew 4, verse number 23, the identical thing that we just read in Matthew chapter 9. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So from the fourth chapter to where we are in the ninth chapter, there is consistency in Jesus' ministry. These chapters are like bookends to the chapters that are in between, in which there is the teaching of Jesus' greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, teaching people about the law of God. There's also the performance of many, many more miracles that proved that he was a teacher sent from God. I think it may have been in last week's message that I said that Nicodemus recognized who Jesus was when he said, Rabbi, in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now here is the ministry of Christ as we observe his life. If we continue reading through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that he never deviates from the pattern. He continued to teach and preach and show love and compassion for the people. That's his M.O. It's his modus operandi, his routine. And since he is our teacher, he's the pattern 
for every believer and for every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice, though, if you have your Bible still open, notice how the scriptures transition from chapter 9 into chapter 10. Now, if you care to look there, the scripture says in the ninth chapter that Jesus taught, he preached, he healed, and between these chapters, something happens. It changes from Jesus doing his ministry alone to getting the disciples effectively involved in doing the same things that he did. Jesus' ministry was brief. He had only three years to do his work. And so we wonder how, how this abbreviated ministry turned into what we see today. That across the world there are millions, even billions of people who claim to know Jesus Christ. Jesus has impacted the world for 2,000 years. How did this ministry survive? He only had three years to do what he did and then he left this world. Well, notice in the first verse of chapter 10, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, following this, reading on in chapter 10, is continuous instructions about how the disciples would carry on this ministry and reach people for the kingdom of God. Now, we note that what Jesus enabled them to do is something, uh, many things that we can't do. We can't heal people. We can't cast out demons. We can't do any of those types of miracles. But we can do this. We can follow the compassionate pattern of Jesus' life and model what his disciples are expected to live by. And that is to be preachers, teachers, tellers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now today I'd like for us to look at these verses and notice some particulars of Jesus' ministry that are important for us. Now the first of these uh, is the persistence, the persistence in the work. Just to stick to it, the persistence in doing the work. Now Matthew 4:23 again, it's after Jesus' baptism, it's after the temptation in the wilderness. And from those events, from the later imprisoning of John the Baptist... Jesus left Judea to begin the Galilean ministry. And he was focused in this ministry. He was consistent with it. He was traveling from town to town in Galilee, walking through the area, crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee many times to reach as many people as possible. Now, we notice that the scripture says he went about all Galilee. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that at that time there were about 200 of these towns and villages in Galilee. The population was around 3 million people. There was no time then for Jesus to slow down. No time at all. If he went to all the towns, he had to be up early. He must stay out late. Consistently, every day, he had to keep moving, doing what he needed to do. And this is the reason that he became tired and he needed rest. It's the reason that we find him in the 8th chapter sleeping in the boat on one of those many crossings of the Sea of Galilee when a storm arose on the sea. He was always busy, persistently doing the work of his father. And that's the pattern for us. It's the pattern for his disciples and what he called them to do. He told them to follow him. And if they were to follow him, they must keep up. His business was the kingdom. His business was to reach people. Their business 
was not all that important. Not too important. It was the kingdom that mattered to Jesus. Well, let, let, me, let me take that for just a moment and show you how it relates to you as a child of God. Now, I know that I don't think that as I look over the crowd that I see anyone who would say that they have a call to full-time ministry. Most of you will not spend your time as I do. You will not spend every day studying the Bible. You will not prepare sermons to preach from the pulpit. You will not daily administer the work of the church. No, you have jobs. You have jobs. Some of you are retired, but you had jobs at one time. You had jobs that you had to go to. You had to take care of your family. Um, You had to, to do all of those things just to survive in this world. But I would submit to you that your purpose in working and your purpose in retirement or whatever it is, is still God's business. You exist in the world, in God's kingdom today, and you live because God has given you something to do as well. And your secular job is a way that he can facilitate his work in the world. Now, I've mentioned this before, that those of you that work on public jobs and meet people every day and do whatever it is that you do, you reach an audience that I will never reach. You reach people that will never hear me speak. You reach people that will never take the opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. And that is your opportunity to do it. To work for Christ in the place that you are. So what God has given you to do is missionary work. All of us are called to be missionaries. Our purpose is to serve Christ. It is to serve Christ and to take the opportunities that God gives to accomplish his purpose. Now since that is true, since it is true, we wonder why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard To get people who say that they have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is it so hard to get them to come to church? Why would COVID affect what we do for Christ? Why would it? There's a lack of consistency. A lack of persistency in doing the Lord's work. So it's hard today to find Christians that have this this singular commitment to the work of Christ. Now in our church... Looking at us today, we don't have the option of too many people that just don't work. We don't have the option of too many people that decide, well, there are other things I must do when God's people meet. Now, I'm not talking about the vacations that people take and so on. You need to do those things, of course. But I would say for somebody who takes a vacation every week, that would be a serious problem for a Christian. That's not our job to do. There is no way that we can reach all the towns and villages if we don't do it the way that Jesus did. Now, I can change that around a little bit and make it more personal to you. There's no way that we can reach our environs. There's no way we can reach the developments of Roner Park. No way we can reach the neighborhoods of where we live without God's people who are willing to bookend on one end of their lives the salvation that they have in Christ and to have the other bookend going home to glory and taking as many people with you as you can. This is what we do throughout our life. We become servants of Jesus Christ. He made us to be his servants when he saved us. We belong to him. Salvation is not something that Jesus uh, does just to get you out of going to hell. That's not the purpose of your salvation. The purpose, first of all, foremost, of course, is the glory of God. Glorify Jesus Christ. And one of the chief ways that we glorify him is through 
is through the work of the church in doing this work that God calls us to do to reach other people for him. 1 Corinthians 6.20, the Apostle Paul wrote, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And you can't help but notice the ownership here. You have been bought. You have been bought. You belong to someone else. Therefore, conclusion, conclusion, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this amazing price that was paid for us is the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross, his blood shed for our redemption, is the price paid to bring us into his service. His death was the ultimate sacrifice to give us life and bring us as servants into the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice in verse 35 the kinds of things that Jesus did on a daily basis. As we look in these last verses, what was his routine? I think that I would start with this. I would start with his erudition. I hope you understand the word erudition because that's, that's one or a form of it that I like to use in preaching. I speak of the erudite. What that means is learning. It means scholarship. Jesus went into the synagogues with great knowledge of God's word. And do you know how he achieved this knowledge? I hope you do because we did cover it recently. Some think, well, after all, he's the son of God. Sure, he's the son of God. He was pre-programmed with all of his learning. And that is not true. Need I remind you? Jesus was also human. He was 100% human as well as 100% God. There's no way that I can explain that. It's never happened to anyone else in the history of the world. It will never happen to anyone else. Jesus was the unique son of God. But in his humanity, he was no different than you and me in his childhood and growth. Not much is said in scripture about Jesus as a child. There's very little written about anything that happened to him when he was a child. But we do have the statement in Luke 2 verse 52. And this is what we talked about before uh, in speaking of the Holy Spirit's influence on his life. In Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. W.A. Criswell commented on this verse and said, Luke indicates that Jesus grew, one, intellectually, two, physically, three, spiritually, and four, socially. He grew and matured just like any other person. Now you might ask then, well, how is it possible that Jesus could increase in any way? He was God. Didn't he have all of this intellect and wisdom and spirituality because he was God? And that's a very interesting question. But we need to understand the answer to that question in light of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. And there it speaks of Jesus as he stepped down from heaven, Christ stepped down from heaven. It speaks of him emptying himself and being made in the likeness of man. That is a doctrine that is known as the kenosis of Christ. It is the depletion of him, the evacuation of the glories of God as the Son of God stepped down to become man. So as a human, Jesus had to learn and experience what he went through just as you and I do in order that I mean, it was necessary for him to demonstrate righteousness in his life. 
It was necessary to earn righteousness by perfect obedience to the laws of the Father. So I can tell you that Jesus was erudite only because he spent time studying the scriptures. He learned so that he could step into the synagogues and teach as one who had authority. Now this leads me next to his exposition. It was customary in the synagogues for God's word to be read and explained. It was a system that allowed visiting teachers to sit in with the elders of the synagogue and explain scripture. Jesus was, quote unquote, granted that privilege because he did know so much of the word of God. He was uncommon in his understanding and knowledge of the scripture. So he was asked to come and speak Read the scriptures in the synagogue. He was a masterful teacher. So he read the words of the great prophets. And he said something they didn't expect. He said, you know something, fellas? That's my, that's my language. He said, you know something, fellas? This scripture is all about me. And I can tell you they didn't like that. They didn't like it. Now, at least in this sense... The synagogue is the model for what we are supposed to do here. The exposition of scripture is the most important part of what we do in these services. How they speak of Christ. How they are, are uh, they speak of him as the priority of preaching. Now I say singing is good. We love to sing. Uh, we love the songs that we just sang. That's part of worship. Praying, that's... That's part of worship. We like to do that. We're in contact with the Father. Reverence is good. That's something that we ought to do in worship. But the most important part of our worship is when God speaks to us. So we want to be very careful that we don't go to churches where they spend their time doing their own talking. Let's talk about us rather than let's talk about God. Singing is our expression. Prayer is us talking to God, but preaching and exposition, that is when God speaks to us. He doesn't speak to us in an audible voice. You needn't expect to hear God's voice booming, thundering from heaven so you'll get the knowledge of his word. Instead, the Bible says just simply, how shall they hear without a preacher? That's God's ordained method. How shall they hear without a preacher? And we'll probably, we'll, we will get into this a little bit more, that uh, people don't hear because they don't really have preachers. At least not preachers that are the kind that we find that God wants in his church. Not what we find according to God's word. But preaching, that is the ordained method by which we hear from God. So if you go to a church where the Bible isn't read, where it's not used, where it's not explained, where it's not preached, if you go to a church where the Word of God is not primary, it's not number one, it's not the top of the list, then I would tell you, well, you're just in the wrong church. And I think that I am qualified to qualify it, because all I do is tell you what the Word of God says. And I don't mean to go to church to listen to object lessons and to listen to little stories that barely mention at all, maybe, the cross, redemption, sinfulness, salvation, repentance and faith, blood, the righteousness of Christ, retribution, eternal punishment for those that are lost, and eternal bliss for those that are saved. If you don't get all of that from cover to cover from God's word, then you're just simply in the wrong church. 
don't want to go to church where they're afraid or they don't care about the Bible and don't practice it as the final authority for all the activities of our lives. Now, thirdly, and most importantly, for the personal dilemma that we experience here today is Christ's evangelism, his evangelism. Now, verse number 35 says, he preached the gospel. The gospel here is euangelion. It's the same word from which we get evangelism. Jesus spent time evangelizing. He preached. That is the same as saying he proclaimed, he heralded the good news of the kingdom. That's the pattern for us. It's what we are supposed to do. Now in chapter 10, he began to teach the disciples how to do evangelism. He taught them to go to speak to people. Some people think in the church, well, that's what the pastor is supposed to do. That on Sunday mornings, I get up to preach evangelistic sermons. This is what I do every week. And our hope is that we would get somebody, somebody in this building saved. And I would say, that's good. We do want to see people in our congregation saved, but I've made the point so many times before that is not the purpose of the church. Evangelization is not the purpose when we're in this meeting. This meeting is to equip the saints. This, this meeting is to tell you how to do what you are to do according to God's word. This meeting is for us to learn what's in the Bible that says how God's people are to act, what they are to do, what we are to be out in the world. So, of course, we want people to come and hear the word of God and be saved. But this place is for the instruction of believers. Bring them in here. That's fine. We hope that you will. But don't forget, we have the responsibility out there. So I'm revealing your responsibilities. I'm just telling you what the word of God says for your edification. The Bible calls it equipping the saints. And Ephesians says this is what pastors are called to do, to equip the saints. So evangelism, that's done mostly on the outside. I preach from time to time evangelistic messages. I try to make sure that there is a call for lost sinners to come in this service. But my primary purpose is to teach you as Christ taught his disciples. Go out and evangelize. Go to the towns and villages, the neighborhoods, the subdivisions, the developments of our town and preach the gospel. Now, I'll say that Since you've not been told to leave your jobs behind and to become full-time evangelist, I doubt very seriously any of you will sell everything that you have and become a John the Baptist. I don't think that you will do that. But nevertheless, you are a full-time evangelist in this sense that you are to shine the gospel light of Christ wherever you are. You do that in the way that you live. You can do that in the opportunities that you're given to share the good news. Now, I I know what you face on the job every day. Uh, I've talked with many of our members down through the years that speak of how much more difficult that it is to share the gospel with someone on the job. Uh, Today, trying to do that will just immediately have you canceled. Isn't that true? You will be canceled if you try to speak of Christ. You're not woke enough. You'll be canceled for that. I realize that is a hard thing to do on the job. We can't do it like we used to do. Hostility against Christianity is growing. Uh, Now, Christians are on the same level as the terrorists and the infidels. And it's funny or strange how that things have turned around. We're not the ones who help people. We're the ones that are keeping people shackled. Well, it's still, though, the pattern of Jesus to 
speak to people about the word. We needn't think that Jesus had it made in the shade. That his disciples faced no opposition. That's categorically wrong according to the word of God. Yes, they did face opposition, but they didn't stop preaching the gospel. So we can find ways to do that. You'll find ways to share it in, uh, in, in places that you are if you have that mindset that people need to hear about Christ. So he began to elucidate the scriptures with exposition, constantly, day by day, evangelizing the lost. And that is our pattern to follow in ministry. Now we also notice in these verses, uh, secondly, is the problem with the people. There is a problem with the people. Verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. There is a problem with the people. There is this perpetual problem that happens, and it's still with us today. The scriptures describe the problem. The people are like sheep that have no shepherd. So this was, this is letter A in your listening sheet, their condition. What is their condition? Well, they are wandering sheep. Sheep that have no shepherd. Now, the first problem that we see here is that they are like sheep. And you might think, well, that's, a, that's just a really a nice reference. That paints a picture in your mind of people that are like little lambs. Sweet and innocent, cuddly, little lambs. And we're just captivated by that picture, the little lamb. I remember when I was in elementary school that uh, our class went on a field trip to the University of Kentucky Ag- Agricultural Station. They had hundreds and hundreds of acres where they grew crops and they studied also animal husbandry. And on this day, we went into one of the barns and they were shearing the sheep. And we noticed how nice and cuddly and calm that these sheep were as they were being sheared. And you don't find children that are too much afraid of, usually not too much afraid of sheep, like to go to the petting zoos and pet sheep or pet goats. You know, I've learned a lot more about this since my daughter has begun raising sheep when I go to her house at first the sheep you know they don't know me so they're a little bit skittish and standoffish but it doesn't take very long to where you can just go up and you can pet the sheep now the goats are a little bit more aggressive they're ready to come right now to you to get into your pockets and eat everything that you have so you have to be real careful about them Uh, but we don't think of them being harmful to us in any way they're nice and cuddly and that's a great picture of what we are like in a much different way, though, because many, many times the Bible emphasizes the character of people, and and then Jesus taught how how tender he was by calling them his little lambs. But this is not what Matthew has in mind. It's not that nice reference. It's not what Matthew's trying to get across. Jesus had compassion on them, not because they're cuddly sheep. Oh, his compassion is because they're stupid like sheep. Not in a hateful way. Don't misunderstand. Humans are like sheep in that we're stupid. We can't find our way. We don't know how to get to God. We don't know what's best for us. Do you think it's not stupidity? Gross ignorance, I think, is not even good enough for it. To see people ruin their lives with drugs and alcohol, venereal diseases. And you know this thing going around now? Monkeypox? As if we don't know how to solve that problem. We don't know how to solve that. I mean, they, they, they put us in our homes for you know almost two years, uh, sitting in your home doing nothing because of... Uh, I'm, I don't want to preach about that. 
Um, but monkeypox. We don't know how to cure monkeypox. That's really strange, isn't it? 99% of one, one portion of the population gets monkeypox. And now we've got a federal emergency over it. How are we going to get rid of that? Well, I've got suggestions. What do, what do we think about this dirty, rotten morality that we have today? Is, not, is that not ignorance? Is that not stupidity in what we do to ourselves? Is it not stupid for parents to uh, take their kids to story time told by drag queens? A sheep is a dumb animal. A sheep has no homing instincts. You take a sheep five minutes away from the rest of the sheep, he has no idea where he is, how to get home. Now, I remember reading a story. I think maybe recently I read another one of these stories about a cat that, uh, that found its way from one side of the country to the other after many, many months of its, its owners leaving the cat behind. I guess the cat didn't get the picture. They left him behind. But anyway, he spends nine, nine, ten months, you know, trying to get across the country to find his, find his owners. Now that, in my mind, of course, is impossible for a cat to do. Because I think a cat's pretty stupid. And understand, that's one person's opinion. I, I don't want to be put into the stocks for telling cat stories. But God didn't compare us to cats and dogs. He didn't compare us to that. They've got a little bit of sense. Sheep have none. Well, Jesus says the people are like sheep. They're wandering around without a clue where they are. And do you remember, that's how the Bible says that we are. Doesn't it say that all we, like sheep, have gone astray? In other words, he's telling us that's a characteristic of sheep. They all go astray. Sometime or another they do, and so you have shepherds out wandering around the fields looking for the lost sheep. Folks, people are wandering around like stupid sheep with no idea where they are, no idea how to make things right, no idea what to do, and certainly no idea of how they will get to heaven. For that, you need a shepherd. You need someone to guide them and get them where they need to be. So that's how Jesus saw people. They're wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I might mention this is one of the reasons that he went into the synagogues to teach. He went in there because not only were the people stupid, now we can bring in our word ignorant. They were ignorant. Stupid is not the same as ignorant. Stupid is derogatory. Ignorant is unlearned. But they shouldn't have been unlearned. Not at all. They had the scriptures. They had their rabbis. They, they had them for hundreds of years. They had the laws of Moses. They had the examples of Israel. They, they had the prophets. They had all of those teachings for all these years. They have the word of God, but they're ignorant of it. They miss the meaning of it. And I pointed that out when I was talking about Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, you mean that you are a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus went into the synagogue to teach because what they heard in the place of worship did nothing at all to enlighten them to the truth of the word. This is why Jesus had to explain the law in the Sermon on the Mount, because they were ignorant. So they'd gone to the synagogues for their entire lives. They learned nothing of the truth. And so there is a problem with the people. It's the condition. It is that they are sheep. They have no shepherd, no one to lead them. And that leads me to the next observation of their problem is their plight. And here we talk about shepherds again, without shepherds. This is the plight. They can't get where they need to go because they don't have the shepherd to lead them. Verses 36 and 37, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad, a sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. 
By the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, there was hardly anyone in the entire nation of Israel that knew anything about the true God they claimed to worship. Before Jesus was born, there was a godly priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. The scripture says of them, and they were both, Luke 1, 6, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. These were true believers. These were the ones that God chose to be the parents of John the Baptist. And then, when Jesus was born, there was a man named Simeon, that the Bible says was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says that he was a just and devout man. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple for circumcision, he said, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. But there weren't many of those people around. Mary and Joseph were another two. This is why they're chosen to be the parents of Jesus. Those types of people were far, few and far between. Synagogues and the temple, that that was filled with rogues that were hypocrites. They were supposed to be the shepherds, but they were hirelings that cared nothing for the sheep. All they cared about was themselves, enriching themselves, and perverting the word of God for their own benefit. Now, for you now, today, does that sound kind of familiar? People enriching themselves by religion, reaping their, their, their benefits from the religiosity of the people? Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Oh, sure it does. You watch TV and you see their faces light up with fakery as they promise to make you wealthy all the while they've got their hands in your pocket. Oh, yes, they, they'll, they'll make them wealthy. Don't pay attention to them because they know nothing of God. They know nothing more than the scribes and the Pharisees. They're of the same stock. And the problem is so pervasive throughout the churches of our country that to find somebody that preaches from the Bible, to find a church that is nothing more than a social gathering or a rock concert, try to find one with Bible exposition and with a preacher who still tells it like it is from cover to cover from the Word of God, you try to find that, you better make sure you got plenty of gas money. Make sure your tank is full. It will take many tanks of gas to find a person who still does what Jesus did. So you'll waste time trying to find somebody that preaches the same gospel as the Apostle Peter. You'll, find, you'll have trouble finding someone who is uncompromising, unyielding in his fortitude like the Apostle Paul. Ah, but you'll find many of them in their golf shirts with their faded jeans, their ripped jeans, sitting on stools, trying to be relevant and trying to meet felt needs. They have their gospel of self-esteem, which ensures that you will realize your potential. They will make you a better you. They just can't make you like Jesus. Those kinds are everywhere. There are few real shepherds. Jesus saw the problem. The people are scattered like sheep because the shepherds are a useless pile of sheep dung. That's the low part of my sermon today. We'll we'll go up from there, I promise. Well, Jesus had no use for that bunch, neither do I. Maybe you think, well, what you're saying there, Pastor, that's really not Christian charity. But maybe you think people die and go to hell. It's not really a problem either. The harvest truly is plenteous. There are many on the way to hell. The world is full of them, but there are few people to work in the harvest. Now, notice what Jesus said needs to be done. 
This is another part of the routine of Jesus. What did he say and what did he do? Well, number three is prayer for help. Verse number 38. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest. Jesus was a man of prayer. He was God for sure, but he was also a man. So you find him often on his knees praying to the Father. He went and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed some more. The disciples fell asleep on him while he was praying. He labored in supplication. They were lazy in sleep. But this is what Jesus says to do. Get busy about it. Pray that God will send somebody into the harvest. And I think this is what Christians do. They pray that God will send somebody into the harvest. Just don't let it be them. Jesus told the disciples to pray about it. Get busy talking to God about it. Notice what he says today. First, uh, says to do. First, wait on God. His first instruction is not rush out there with all of your tracks, with your door hangers, and with your church brochures. Hurry up and get a move on it. Get out there. He didn't say that. He said, pray. Why do you need to pray? Well, that's a really good question. I want to answer it for you. Why do you need to pray? Well, you need to pray because the only one who can move the sinner's heart is God. Most people think that salvation is just a person's free will to make a choice. That we are responsible to singularly convince people of the truth and by their free will they will decide to choose God or reject him. Well, I would ask you a question then, if that's true, why do you pray? What's the necessity of praying? Why would you pray for the loss if it's nothing but simply a decision they make? Well, we pray that God will let them make the right decision. That God will guide that decision. We pray for God to change their decision because what they will always do is turn against God because that's what they've always done. And that's what we always will do. So we pray that God will change their will and their understanding to know who Jesus is. The will is naturally against God. And so they pray, God, open their hearts. We pray open hearts and cause them to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before any person will be saved, God must change the heart and cause them to understand. So Jesus told them to pray because only God Almighty can move people to the work and only God Almighty can move people to salvation. It won't be done in your energy. It will not be done in your power. It will not be done because you discovered somebody's surefire techniques in a soul winning book and said, do this and they'll all make decisions. Well, I would say, yes, you can get decisions, but you will not get eternally damned sinners saved. Only God can do it. So pray for help. Before you go, pray the Holy Spirit will work in a person's heart when they hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit will lead them to salvation because you never will. Only God changes hearts. So first you wait on God. Now the next thing, and we'll finish with this, the next thing is you pray, work on me. Work on me. When you start praying, something will happen. And it may not be what you expected to happen, not what you bargained for. Jesus said, pray for laborers, not pray for the lost. You notice that? Pray for laborers. Most people start out only praying for the lost. People will come to me and they say, you know, I've been praying that my aunt and uncle will get saved. I'm praying for somebody to go and tell them how to be saved. Will you put them on the prayer page and may somebody just go there, tell everybody to pray that they'll get saved. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we can put people on prayer pages and tell others to pray for them. We pray for a lot of people that have salvation needs. 
we pray for more of them to get saved. And there are few reports, there are few reports, I should say, that come back. Well, you know something? They got saved. They, they got saved. We were praying for my friend and they got saved. We don't really hear a lot of those reports. But somebody, more often, would come and say something like this. There is no result. And so they'd say, well, I guess it's just God's will for them not for them to be saved. In his election and his predestination, he's just not going to save them. You don't want to hear me say, hear you say that. Don't ever give up on somebody that's lost. Don't ever give up praying for people. But what you might do is start praying a little differently. Start praying, God, send somebody to my friend with the gospel. Please send somebody so they will hear and be saved. And listen to that again. God, send somebody to them with the gospel. Do you know why you should keep praying that? Because eventually you'll get the idea by praying that prayer over and over, you'll eventually get the sense of it. And the sense of it is you'll learn, God, I think that somebody is me. Then you'll start praying, God, empower me with your word. God, show me how to speak to them. Show me what to say. Teach me how to approach them. Give me the right words. So when you start to pray, here am I, send me, then you've just hit on Jesus' modus operandi. How does he do it? Well, he tells the disciples to start praying, and then he turns right around and teaches them how to get involved in evangelizing the lost. When Jesus said, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labors into his harvest, he had nobody in mind at that moment but them. Right then, they're the laborers that he intended to send into the harvest. They got involved in prayer, they waited on God, and then it was, God, work on me. So do you see the way that Jesus works? He was persistent about the work the Father gave him to do. He always did the Father's will. And the Father's will was for Jesus to learn what he needed to know, to grow up studying the Word, learning the power of the Spirit that was in him, and teach the same to others. He taught them to do what he did. He preached the gospel. He evangelized, told people to repent of their sins. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no one who comes to the Father but by me. Stop trying to get to heaven some other way. Then he got others involved. He got them praying. And when their prayers were earnest, that somebody would go and speak the gospel to others, that somebody turned out to be them, the same ones that were praying. So folks, I hope you see this. The only way that we can do God's work is to do it God's way. This is the routine. This is his methodology, what Jesus did. And may God lay it on our hearts to do what Jesus did. Pray for the harvest. Pray that you will be the one out there swinging the sickle and bringing the sheaves into God's fold. Now, if we want more people in heaven, then we've got to spend more time out there making sure of the opportunities that God gives, making sure that we use those. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will work on us, that he will work in us, and that we will be active like Jesus. Blessed be God for the spirit of evangelism. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing that we have no hope but you. We have no help unless you are the one who comes to us and leads us, who is our great shepherd, our good shepherd, to show us the way to go and how we are to live and what activities that should be a part of our lives. Lord, when we're saved, we've learned that we become your servants. 
We are to serve you in the kingdom, and this is one of the chief ways that you tell us to do it. We want to give you all the glory. And one special way of glorifying you is to have more people glorify you by having them come to understand the knowledge with the knowledge of the Savior and to receive him as the only one who can save them from their sins. Help us today, Lord. Be with this congregation. May you help us as we do our best to rebuild Berean Baptist Church. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.